have a copy of God's Word, would you turn to Romans as we continue our wonderful and albeit maybe slow study of um, Paul's, uh, Paul the Apostle, his letter to the church at Rome. And by the way, I love that hymn we just sang. His job, I want you to think about this. This is so much of my child. His job is to lead. It's our job to follow, right? Which means we just show up and trust, right? That takes the pressure off. I think of so many hurting people that um, we know and love in our body and in our circles. And um, for those who are in Christ, praise the Lord, he leadeth me. And he who started a good work, who started this work in us, right, this good work, he is going to be faithful to complete it. He will lead us all the way home. So Romans chapter 2 is where we stopped at verse 11 uh, last week of chapter 2. We're going to start back at verse 11, and we're going to study today down to verse 16. So if I was in, uh, if we were in class in seminary together, um, this is not how you would typically introduce a sermon, but I want to do this because if we were in hermeneutics class, and we were talking about how we interpret Scripture well, and we certainly want to interpret Scripture well, one of the things we would look for would be repeated words or repeated themes. And I want you to pay attention. In just the span of verses 12 through 16, we're going to get the word law, L-A-W, law, 11 times. 11 times. And we'll talk about what is significant about that as we unpack this uh, passage. But pay attention to that. And God's standard of judgment, God's standard of judgment is what we are considering today. So the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 2, verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray that it will cut our hearts, Lord, that you would be pleased to work powerfully in us. Grant us grace and the ability to behold wonderful things, Lord, from your law. We thank you that your word leads us to Jesus and that Jesus is the great Savior, King, Lord. We pray that everything that happens in Jesus' bride today will be pleasing, God, in your sight. For your glory in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God's standard of judgment. And if you're like I am, that argument, and Paul's making this beautiful argument that he started back at chapter 1, verse 18. He's communicated the gospel and how it's the power of God, this good news, 
It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But then when he gets to verse 18 in chapter 1, he starts telling us about the wrath of God and God's judgment upon humanity. And so I want you to think about this. We continue in this section where um, Paul continues to describe the disease, the disease that we have. So he's not yet come to the solution. There are pointers along the way. For example, here's one pointer. In our passage today, Romans 2 verse 13, you get a key word that's going to be a profound theme of Romans. You get it mentioned for the first time, the doers of the law will be justified. He has not used that word to this point in this letter. He's going to use that word and that principle he's going to talk about a lot. But we're still talking about the disease. And so the context is a section where where he's correcting the Jews, and the Jews saw themselves as highly religious, morally superior, and he wants to show them, listen, that their special status, they had, they had special status in God's eyes, but that was not salvific. That was not saving. Their status, listen to this, here would be sort of a summary application of this passage to the Bible Belt Church. Having the Bible, having the truth, being exposed to the truth, being in the church, will not save. Possessing a Bible is not saving. Being a member of a church is not saving. That's what he's beating into their head. Them being possessors of God's special benefits, being God's chosen people, having God's law, that was not a blessing that encompassed salvation. They couldn't depend on that. C.S. Lewis wrote so well, he articulated this biblical truth that we're talking about today, how we've got to understand, listen, our problem. We've got to understand we're sick before the gospel makes sense. Listen, this is from mere Christianity. I like what Lewis says here. He says, my reason was that Christianity simply does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts I've been describing Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they have done, that, who do not know they have done anything to repent of, and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power, a capital P power, behind the law, and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power, it is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. When you have realized that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. They offer an explanation of how we got into our present state of both hating goodness and loving it. They offer an explanation of how God can be this impersonal mind at the back of the moral law and yet also a person. They tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf. How God himself becomes a man to save man from the disapproval of God. Amen. 
Mr. Lewis, that is well said. That is rich gospel ground. And so many times we're not going to buy the lie because we are people of the book. But so many times people would say, hey, we're about to go out and do evangelism. Tone down the communication of the bad news. And we said, no, we're going to say the bad news loud. Because if the gospel is going to be powerful, people have to understand that we are sick. That's what he's saying here. That's a summation of our passage. So God's standard of judgment. Number one, it's impartial. Look at verse 11. And we plowed this ground last week, but the context for this week just flows from this principle of verse 11. God's standard of judgment is impartial. Romans 2 verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. He is an impartial judge. No favoritism, no bribing, no behind-the-scenes deals being cut. Listen to the opening of the Bible, Genesis 18. This is declared from the beginning. The context of Genesis 18, this verse I have for you, by the way, verse 25, Genesis 18, is God's judgment about to fall on Sodom. Listen to this. Genesis 18, 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. God would never treat the righteous and the wicked the same. God does not treat everyone the same. I like to blow up ideas that you hear. You know, there's a lot of bad theology out there and just listen to it like you know so when people tell you you that God treats everyone the same that is not true that 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 that's downplaying the bad news so that the righteous and the wicked are treated like so he's getting ready to go to Sodom what a picture that is of God's wrath and then the last sentence of Genesis 18 25 shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly God will all times, everywhere, forever deal justly. So, God's standard of judgment begins with this truth, this reality, this certainty that God is impartial. Second, God's standard of judgment, look at verse 12, is universally applied. It's universally applied. Look at verse 12. You see a repeated phrase, verse 12, for all who have sinned and drop down to the comma, and all who have sinned. So let's talk about this. The key is all who have sinned. For all who have sinned, and there's two ways you can sin. Without the law, that's Gentiles. They were not the recipients of the Mosaic law. So everyone, all the Gentiles who have sinned without the law, what happens to them? Well, they will perish. So they sin without the law, they're going to perish without the law. Now here's where it hits Home, that old man of Romans 2, remember Paul's going, hey, you old man who thinks you've got a, you think you've got a special advantage with God, and he's sort of poking his finger in that old man's chest. That guy's thinking like, well, you know what, since I've got the law, I'm in good shape. No, no, no. Verse 12, all who have sinned without the law, perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law, the Jews, guess what? They're going to be judged by the law. So this idea that they saw themselves as right with God due to their having, it it almost be like saying having possession of the law. Since we have a Bible, God's on our side. Since we have a Bible, we're saved. We could say it like this. Since I'm a member of a church, since since I give, whatever we would trust in, like looking at something that we would try to prop up as a special favor that we could lean on. So what he tells us here, listen to this. Knowledge of the law, knowledge of the truth will not 
save. There will be lots of knowledgeable people, knowledgeable of the things of God in hell. Knowing does not equal salvation. He's going to great lengths. Part of me feels like, you know, it's like, Paul, you really are pressing the point. So, verse 12, all who have sinned, that's the key phrase there. That's the universal human condition. And, and everyone sins, and sinners show up from two paths. The Gentiles come the path of without the law. Guess what? If you come by the way the Gentiles come without the law, where does that path end? You perish. And by the way, perish here, perish has to do with this eternal punishment, eternal condemnation. All who have sinned without the law perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so this is where we get into that theme, law, 11 times in these six verses. And what he's referring to is the Mosaic law that was given, especially it was given to Israel. So they're under the law. And they thought since they were God's covenant people, their mere possession of the law would save them. And he's going to great lengths to help them see that's not the case. By the way, I always think, I, I thought all week, I probably real my age on how many of you won't remember this. Any of y'all remember the Holiday Inn commercial and the guy's like, hey, you know, he's going in to do surgery. Like, man, are you a surgeon? Like, no, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. Remember that, those commercials, it'd be all these crazy, like, no, but I, it, here's what, it'd be like coming to heaven's gate and saying, hey, I'm coming in. It's like, oh, so you, you know Jesus, your name's in the Lamb's book? No, 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 but I have a Bible. You're not coming in. I was a pastor. You're not coming in. I was a church member. You're not coming in. That's, that's, that's the picture I have. So these deceived, do you see how he's trying to, he's trying to shake them to help them see the gospel, to see, listen, their and our great need. We don't say, you take this out of context, I'll hunt you down. We don't need the law. We do. We don't need the Bible. We do. You know what the law in the Bible shows us? We need a Savior. And if you just stop with the law in the Bible, you stop way short of salvation. And what a profound truth, God's standard of judgment, listen to this, is universally applied. And we would say an application of this second point is the law is not a savior. The Bible is not a savior. Jesus Christ is the savior. God's standard of judgment will be, it will be universally applied. Nobody gets to cut that line and say, hey, since I've got, you know, I've got this I've got this fast pass I go around. Jesus Christ is the fast pass. You got, you got to know Jesus. You come by the way. I come by the way of Jesus. God's standard of judgment is universally applied. Third, though, look at verse 13. God's standard of judgment is impossibly high. It's impossibly high. So let's ground our context. Verse 12, all who have sinned. And you sin two ways, with or without the law. Either way you go, you perish. And listen to what he says. He builds this point that he's, he's making here. He's, my picture of what he's doing so well here in this passage, is, and I've, I've mentioned this to you before, but he's running us all into this corner of the human condition of condemned before the holy God. We're, we're, lumped, we're being pressed into that corner. Gentiles, Jews alike, we're being pressed in. 
Verse 13, God's standard of judgment is impossibly high. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Let's go back to our illustration a little bit. It'd be like saying, not just that I have a, have a Bible, not just that I'm a church member. It'd be like we leave and say, hey, man, I just heard a sermon. Says, I've heard a sermon. I just heard a great Sunday school lesson. God's word was laid open. And since I have heard the truth of God, of God's word, I've been justified. And he's hitting us over the head with the truth. And he's saying, no, no, no. Not the hearers of the law who are just before God. So here's the core issue for all humanity. The core issue, and it's presented in verse 13. Who is it that is just before God? Who is it that can go into God's courtroom and get a favorable verdict? And I just told you, who all, verse, uh, point two, who all is going into God's courtroom? We all show up there. One by one, we will be called into God's courtroom. And so here's... Do you see how I told you in the introductory part about describing the sickness? There are these, it's like an ultrasound. Uh, it's like a, uh, a sonar. It's like a prompt. There are, these, there are the, these pointers, ping, pointers to the solution. We're listening to Paul preach, and he gets to verse 13. It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God. We should look at each other and go, somebody, anybody going to be declared innocent in his courtroom? Could that happen? Man, that would be profound if that could happen. So not the hearers of the law. And we're ruling out how you could be justified. Well, you won't be justified by hearing the law because the hearers of the law, they're not just before God, but the doers. Now, this is beautiful. The doers of the law will be justified. Here's the cool thing. We've just studied Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, how is it that you demonstrate that you belong to God? How do you show, how do you make visible your love for God? You do, let me, let's bring it over to another world. Boys and girls, how do you demonstrate that you love your parents? You obey them. That principle applies. How do we demonstrate that we know God and love God? We obey God. And so if you're, verse 13 if you're doing the law, here's the promise. You'll be justified. Why would you be doing the law? Because you have been in God's courtroom and been justified. This beautiful principle that he's communicating here. So, not the hearers. Hearing a sermon will not save. Reading the law will not save. But the doers will be justified. Here's a profound word. Justified. What does that word mean? It's a judicial. Word is the judicial decision of God. The decision of who? The judicial decision of God. So God's the one who does the deciding. You don't come into the courtroom. You know, this wouldn't, you know, you're sitting over there, you've been charged, and you just go, <clears throat> Your Honor, I'd like to just pronounce judgment. I, that'd probably be a fun thing to watch, wouldn't it? Bailiff, throw him on the floor, put duct tape, right? The one who's charged doesn't stand up and declare anything, right? 
Verse 13, this is so profound. It's going to be a principle of the whole letter. It's a principle of the gospel. It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So justified is the judicial decision of God to regard a sinner, that's one guilty, as just or right or innocent before God. You want to know what I want to get in on? You ever had people that were in, um, like, I remember this guy many years ago, that were in, like, network marketing? Like, man, you can be the leg off my tree. You ever had somebody want to come talk to you about that? I need to talk to you. You can sell washing powders, and you and Stephanie are going to have $20 million. If everybody would buy their washing powder, you know what I'm talking about? Like, here's some good news. No, here's the good news. The good, and by the way, you're like, run from that guy. No, no, here's, here's the news we want to hear. You're telling me, here's what I'm telling you the Bible teaches. There is a way for guilty sinners, not if, but when, we walk into God's courtroom. And let me just be precise with the gospel. We can, the only way you can take care of this is before you walk in the courtroom. You get this nailed down, you don't even go in the courtroom. Jesus went in the courtroom on our behalf, but I digress. I told you the solution is thrown in. The judicial decision of God to regard a sinner as just or right or innocent before God, that's more important than your health care, your health, your 401K, your retirement, your children's education. That's more important than anything in the world. And that's what he's telling us here. God's standard of judgment is impossibly high. And mark this, not hearing a sermon not reading the law, not hearing the law. None of that will make you just before God, but the doers of the law, and here's a, is passive language. Every reference to salvation in the Bible, when it's talking about someone who has been, when it's talking about someone who is saved, demonstrates that someone has been saved as passive, will be justified. Is something, listen, outside of you, the problem, don't go pay that $90 an hour to that secular, blasphemous, godless world out there to tell you, like, if you look deep enough within you, you're going to find good. The, the more you do the perpetual navel-gazing, the more you're going to see the bad What's in us is bad. Let me tell you, we have to look outside of ourselves. We have to look up to the solution. And I love the language. He's already preparing us for that. It's not, okay, you're going to have to do pull-ups and show up early and run the fast mile to be justified. No, the doers of the law, they're going to find, they're going to experience something. They're going to be justified. Not something we do. It's something that God in Christ has done. It's beautiful, beautiful. So God's standard judgment, third is impossibly high. Fourth, it's universally known. It's universally known. Look at verse 14. Now, so the context, Jews are saying, man, we possess the law, we're good. Gentiles, on the other hand, could be saying, hey, since we don't even have the law, we don't know. And he's going he's to prove both of those as false. Verse 14, God's standard of judgment is universally known. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, so they, they don't possess the Gentiles, 
They didn't have the Mosaic law. But listen to this. That doesn't mean they have no law because God's given them his law, his moral law. So when Gentiles, verse 14, who do not have the law, guess what they do? They do instinctively the things of the law. So anywhere you go in the world, God's moral law is reigning. So taking, wherever you are, taking someone's property is frowned upon, right? Don't prove that. It is. You can go to places it's frowned upon. Children disobeying their parents is recognized as wrong. Murder is seen as evil. By the way, the response to the wicked attacks from Hamas on Israelites show that all humanity knows there's a standard. We all know there's a standard of right and there's a standard of wrong. This miraculous, by the way, it's divine revelation. We don't think about it. You go, well, everybody knows that. Now, you took, you're, you're, now you're over in the ground of apologetics. Here's some great proof ground for God. How do we all know that there's... You haven't met anybody that's like, you know, hey, maybe you're sharing the gospel. Like, let's talk about sin. They're like, what do you mean Sin. It's like, man, have you ever done anything wrong? They're like, what do you mean wrong? What's wrong? And by the way, then when people, you meet people and say, hey, everything's relative, you can prove my point. Say, right now, won't you do me a favor? Do you have an iPhone? Guess what they'll say probably? Yes. Do you have a credit card? Yes. Do you have a vehicle? Yes. Give me your iPhone, your credit card, and your vehicle. I want to take it. Then they're going to prove the moral law. You know what they're going to look at you and say? That's wrong. And you'll say, well, who told you that was wrong? I don't think it's wrong to take people's iPhone, credit card, and vehicle. I just do that. No, no, we know. And that's exactly what he's saying here. so clear. When Gentiles, they walk around and go, we didn't get the Mosaic law. You know what they did get, though? They got God's law. When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, the Gentiles, not having the law, are law to themselves. In that, here's what they prove. They show God's law. They show the work of the law. Guess what? God has written it in their hearts and their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. You know what I always find interesting? When you hear about very notorious criminals and you hear about, um, I used to work for years, I called on doctors down in, I had a big territory out of Montgomery and I'd call on doctors down in Atmore, Alabama. And Atmore, at the time, I don't know if that's still the case, but they had the prison down there where, wasn't it Yellow Mama? Isn't that what they called her? I think, have I got that right? Y'all looking at me like, y'all don't even live in Alabama. I think there's an electric chair in Atmore, somewhere right in that area, and they would execute people. I was in, down staying in that area one time overnight, and there was things being filed. And so when you, when you think about God's judgment and this... Um, standard of God, even among notorious criminals. Like I've always heard, you know, I don't know, but I've always heard that like people who harm kids, that the really hard criminals in prison are really hard on people who harm kids. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? That there's a standard and we know where the standard is. And the, listen to this, even the most, those that have been most wicked, according to our society, they've been locked in the most dangerous places. If you put people in there, there's a standard. And what he's saying is, we know God's law. We're not walking around ignorant. That's why we're like, well, I just don't know. I didn't know any better. I try that with Stephanie when I misbehave sometimes. I don't think I know better. She's like, you know. 
Y'all know, we know, your kids know, don't they? It's just like, seldom is it is the issue ignorance that won't cut it. I like what, one more Lewis. I like what Lewis, uh, this is in James Montgomery Boyce's commentary, but another Lewis quote about this understanding right and wrong. When, when, we, we, when we would make a claim that somebody's wrong, he said, the man who makes these remarks is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, forget your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard or that if it does, there's some special excuse. He pretends there's some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it or that things were quite different when he was given the bit of orange or that something has turned up which lets him off from keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it about which they really agreed, and they have. If they had not, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they could not quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong, and there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. He's talking about soccer. They didn't know anything about real football. All my English friends, like, do you watch any football this weekend? I was like, y'all don't even know what football is. So, <laughs> listen to what, I like what Boyce says. Lewis had a marvelously fresh gift for stating deep things simply. But it cannot escape us that this is precisely what Paul is saying in Romans 2, 14 and 15 in reference to the Gentiles, though in more theological terms. It is true that Gentiles did not have the Jews' law, but they had a law within them, a law that they did not merely say that some kinds of behavior seemed to work better than others or produce better responses from other people, but rather went far beyond that either to either accuse or excuse them of wrongdoing. Drop down to verse 15, and I'll show you what he's drawing on there. So they do the law. Verse 15, they show the work of God's law, the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience. Look, their conscience is judging, bearing witness. Their thoughts are alternately. And we know right from wrong. God's standard of judgment is universally known. Finally, God's standard of judgment, five, will be the standard Christ uses on the final day. God's standard of judgment. It will be the standard Christ uses on the final day. Look at verse 16. On the day. So he's talking about, let's go back, verse 11. God is never partial. There's no partiality with God. Everyone who sins perishes you can't hear enough sermons, read enough law to be saved, verse 13. Justification only comes by those who are obedient, doers of the law. Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles prove this point. They didn't get the mosaic every day. And then he summarized, he said, that, listen, there's coming a final day, verse 16, on the day when according to my gospel, God 
will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Uh, um, I think the times in, I think back to have great memories, fond memories of my time in seminary. It was odd that I was, um, the timing of me being in seminary, God called me in my mid-30s from the business world into uh, the pastorate. I got promoted and um, that promotion came so I was um, older than most but I did have, an, and I'd been out of school for a long time. By the way, if you're going to learn Greek or Hebrew, don't wait till you're 35 to do that. Just recommendation. Learn, learn that, learn a language, learn like Spanish or something really, really young, and then get to work on Greek. And then Lord bless you if you want to study Hebrew. I'll pray for you. It's hard. But I did have enough sense. I made, I made phenomenal grades in seminary. Just knocked the cover off the ball. Guess what? Because how excited was I to be there and how hard was I working at it? If you get excited about something, you can just like, Voracious, you can learn it, do it um, most of the time. But I was smart enough to know, I called them no coloring moments. When the professor, you know, he'd like open the class, we'd have him prayer requests, we'd pray, and he'd be lecturing along, and then he'd say something like this. What we're about to talk about will be on the final exam. You had me there, right? I'm talking about like I had maybe had been ignoring you, but now I was dialed in. Right? Any of y'all get that? Like, I'm telling you, you will see it again, boys. What, what we're about to cover will be final material. Okay, I think of verse 16. This is final. It's all. Here's final material. But final material that has a sense of urgency. God's coming judgment upon humanity. And then I hear people like, well, you don't need to preach about God's coming judgment. No, 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 Paul. Listen, he gets to the end of it. He's, he's painting us all in that corner as guilty before God before God's bar of judgment. And he says, let me tell you, judgment day is coming on the day when, according to my gospel, by the way, this is the gospel. It's not like, can we get past Romans 1 and 2 and 3 and get to the gospel? No, Romans 1, 2, and 3 is the gospel. On the day when, according to my gospel, here's a promise from Scripture, they probably never made it into Cracker Barrel's God Promise books. God will judge. What will he judge? The secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So those things that we haven't disclosed to each other, those things that haven't been disclosed, guess what? They, God knows, and he will judge them on that day. It's like, man, I don't... I, you talk about the one who knows the worst about us. Boy, you want to talk about for those of us in Christ, that old song we sing, he, he who knew us best loved us most, right? Wow. It's coming judgment day. Paul says God's standard of judgment will be the standard that Christ, Christ will be, look, this has been, this has been given to Christ to do. God will judge the secrets of men. Man, that's pretty encompassing, isn't it? That, that, that's, that's thought life. Word life, deed life. Uh, you remember, again, advertising sticks in my mind. Y'all remember years ago, people were like, hey, what happens in Vegas, what, is recorded in heaven. Wow. We should do that. What happens in Vegas? Go out here and party and cheat on your wife and act like a hellion. Go do that. No, 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 you can't have Jesus. Right, that doesn't square. Because the secrets of men 
are being recorded in heaven. Well, she doesn't know. He doesn't know. He knows. And we listen, we better get it under the blood. Or we will stand before his bar and it'll be absolute, consistent justice across the line. We will get exactly what we have coming. That's terrifying to me. You can sit here today, for me, for you, that's terrifying. You go, you're trying to scare people. I hope that scares us, wakes us from our slumber. God's standard of judgment will be the standard Christ uses on the final day. Let's apply this. Doing the word, five ways. This passage warns us not to take our sin lightly. It warns us not to take our sin lightly. Lewis hit on that. I think of, don't we do this? I think of your sin as bad. My sin as mild. Isn't that how we want to think? Again, battering ram, Romans 1, 2, it's like a sledgehammer to my old hard head, beating us to help us see this passage warns us not to take our sin lightly. Second, it cautions us. Boy, you need this where we live, and we're blessed to be in the Bible Belt, but it cautions us against the danger of equating the truth, of, of equating hearing the truth of Scripture with obeying it. It's a caution. It's dangerous to connect, hey, I heard the truth, and therefore I, I, I walk in that truth. No, no, no. But we need to, we need to soul search, soul search. It cautions us against the danger of equating hearing the truth of Scripture with obeying it. This passage, third, humbles us. It humbles us to see we are not superior to others. We're all over in that corner, that center corner, and we're painted in, and Christ is the only way out. So how, how much sense does it make look around each of the corner like, you're worse than I am. Liar, liar, pants on fire. No, you're worse, right? Where's that going to get us? You, you know who the gospel's for? I picked that for a reason. Sinners who see they need a Savior. Isn't that glorious? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It humbles us to see we're not superior to others. It burdens us for the lost. It helps us to see, it helps us to properly understand what our condition was and then those people that we meet that we know and love those that we don't know or love helps them see their state it gives us a burden for the lost or it ought to finally this passage prompts us we're going to jump a little bit forward in the gospel it prompts us to trust Christ treasure Christ love Christ Serve Christ. Share Christ. Man, doesn't this passage make Jesus look beautiful? Doesn't this passage make salvation look glorious? Full atonement can it be? Now listen to this. Foul. That's not F-O-W-L. I to the fountain fly. Not a bird. Foul, wicked, depraved, foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Those that have been washed, we ought to not be moping around today, had we? And by the way, hey, 
you go over there, you can be washed. Can I help you go over there so you can be washed? Jesus can. Why? We sing all this great truth. Prompts us, this passage prompts us to trust Christ, treasure Christ, love Christ, serve Christ, and share Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for how uh, clear your word is. Uh, Lord, it is a treasure. Lord, it cuts us. Um, Lord, I see myself in um, how the Jews wanted to think they had some kind of favor, how the Gentiles thought that maybe they got off because they didn't have the law. Lord, we clear the fog, the mist. Help us to see you rightly. Help us to see ourselves rightly. For those of us who have been justified, Lord, we we praise you for so great a salvation, such a glorious Savior. Lord, we have Bibles all around. If the Jews were guilty of claiming that their possession of the law would save them, surely there are people living in our midst, Lord, who are trusting in some insufficient Savior of either um, having heard truth or possessing your word or having their name on a church roll. Lord, we pray, God, that you would lay us bare, Lord, before you. That's what your word does, Lord. It cuts us. And Lord, we pray as the great, great divine heart surgeon, Lord, that you will do what needs to be done in us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to treasure Christ more, to trust Christ more, to serve Christ more. Lord, all of that flowing from what you have done for us in Christ. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Lord, give us boldness to share Christ to do it with urgency, to do it with compassion, to do it with boldness. Lord, to do it completely, Lord, to to declare what you have said about our condition, Lord. You reveal the truth about yourself. You reveal the truth about us. And, Lord, it makes us desperate. It shows us our great need. You show us in detail, Lord, how your courtroom operates so Lord we pray that we would search our own souls and hearts today we pray Lord whatever adjustments that need to be made Lord we say amen Lord whatever that looks like we pray God we pray we thank you for mission partners we have around the world, Lord, this little church down in Dothan, Lord, with mission partners working all around the world. And Lord, it's the same gospel, Lord. I know the context and there are different things and cultures, but God, you are the same everywhere all the time and human beings are the same. So Lord, we don't need some special strategy, Lord. We need the gospel and Lord, your people 
with hot hearts. So we pray that you would do that work in us today. We pray you would do that work in our mission partners. And Lord, thank you that your gospel is powerful. Thank you that you have promised us, Lord, that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. We pray, God, that you would work powerfully in your church. Lord, change us from who we are, where we are, to who you would have us to be and where you'd have us to go. We pray, God, for your glory. In Christ's great name, I pray. Amen.